Amen. Well, welcome to Southside. If you're new here, we've been working through the book of Romans for a little while, and we've been in the book of Romans. I think this is our sixth week. It is the great chapter eight. It is the greatest chapter ever written, and we are looking this morning at Romans 8, verse 30. Last week, we looked at Romans 8, 28, one of the grandest, most glorious promises of Scripture, that God works all things for the good of his people And we made an important qualification, actually we didn't, Paul did, that that good is not better circumstances, that good is being conformed to Jesus Christ. And we looked at mostly 28, but this week we want to look at the grounding for that promise, the reasons we can take that promise to the bank. So this week we're going to dive deeper so we will see the rock solid foundation for that promise. Romans 8, 28 to 30, it's been called the golden chain of redemption. And I just want to warn you, we're going into the deep end of the theological swimming pool this morning. Hope you brought your floaties. But these are good news verses, and that's what I want us to see by the end of our time this morning. Let's look at Romans 8, 28 to 30. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 888. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified main point of Romans 8:30 is that from eternity past to eternity future salvation belongs to the Lord and remember the promise of 8:28 this promise that God works all things for the good to conform us to Jesus is not for everyone He works all for the good, but not for all. Well, we hinted last week, for whom then? For whom is the promise for? Last week we saw that it's for those who love God. And we briefly mentioned it's those who are called according to his purpose. But this week we see there are five active verbs and each verb refers to the same group of people. What verse 33 will call the elect, those whom God has chosen. And scripture teaches all over the place that God is sovereign and we are responsible. Those twin truths are affirmed everywhere. But this morning, the focus is on God's side. This morning is a focus on what God has done. This morning, the Holy Spirit through Paul wants us to lift our eyes and focus on what he has done on our behalf. And it starts there in verse 29. This is for those whom he foreknew. Look again at 29. For those whom he foreknew. He also predestined. So this promise is only for those whom God foreknew. Well, we need to ask, what does foreknowledge refer to? And here, the waters part. For hundreds of years, there's been two different interpretations on what foreknowledge means. And it's affirmed by, both views are affirmed by Bible-believing Christians. Evangelical, God-loving, Bible-believing Christians have differed on these on how we define this word for hundreds of years. There's two different schools of what the word means. And one view basically defines foreknowledge as foresight. It's the best way, simplest way I can summarize the view. And another view 
defines foreknowledge as for love. So the question is, is it the foresight of events or is it the for love of persons? The foresight view teaches that foreknowledge is God before time, looking down the corridors of history and watching, because he knows all things, watching who would choose him of their own free will and then responding to their choice. So God responds to the choice of man by choosing him. Man really elects himself and then God responds. And that God then predestines those who make the decision first. That's the foresight of what would happen. The other view, the for love view, is that before time, God foreloved those whom he chose. So he elects, he chooses people based upon his foreknowledge of them. So God, in this view, is not responding to man's choice, but man is responding to God's choice. And so this is an important debate. Again, in-house, Bible-believing Christians differ, but it's important because it has implications for our view of God, our view of people, our view of sin. So I want to lay out here six reasons why I think it means for love. Number one, first is just the broad context. Context is the key to interpretation. So what is the big context of the word? In other words, how does the Bible use the word no in relation to persons? Of course, we all agree. Every Christian agrees that God knows all things. He knows the future and all that will happen. I just don't think that's what Paul is referring to here in these verses. I think in these verses and in other verses, 1 Peter, the book of Acts, to foreknow is to enter into relationship before or to choose before. It's for love. So how does the Bible use this word no? I want to give you a handful of passages so you see it's, it's there. Knowledge is an intimate relational term when it comes to people. These verses don't say that God knew about us, but that God knows us. So it's an intimate term. So let me just show you some passages to show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, I believe is the first time the word is used. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So right away, we know that the word is more than just knowing about. This is a pretty intimate knowing. It's the kind of knowing that leads to babies. First <laughs> Samuel 1.19 says the same thing. Elkanah knew Hannah, and she gave birth to Samuel. Knowing is intimate and relational. Genesis 18.19, actually, I looked at several translations, and one of the, the, most of the translations actually translate the word know in these verses as chosen. Because that's really what the word means. Listen to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, 19 says, for I have chosen. There's the word knowledge. But most English translations translate it as chosen. I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So to know is to love is to choose. Let me read some more. Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. There it is. It's an intimate knowledge. First Samuel 2, 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Well, the sons of Eli definitely knew about the Lord. They just didn't know him in a personal way. If you know that story. Um, let's see. Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. God lovingly chose Jeremiah. He knew him in an intimate way. Amos 3.2, you only have I known from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Think about it. Does God know about other nations? Absolutely. But here in Amos, there's this special knowledge. You only have I known. Matthew 7. Again, it's not, what I'm saying is it's not mere foresight of information. It's for love of persons. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, on that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, Jesus, he's God in the flesh. He knew about these people. He didn't know them in an affectionate, intimate way. So in scripture, summary, to know means to have God's covenant love set upon you. For God to know is for him to set his affection on those whom he has chosen. To know is to be in relationship with. To foreknow is to set his love upon you beforehand. It's not what will happen in the future that God foreknows. It's his chosen people whom he foreknows. He foreknows the people themselves. So again, foreknowledge and choose are really synonyms. Really saying the same thing. In fact, look over at, flip over a page or two at Romans chapter 11. Notice what's said in these verses, Romans eleven two. 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Notice, rejection is the opposite of foreknowledge in these verses. He hadn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. He hasn't rejected his chosen. Okay, so reason number one on why I think it's for love and not for sight is just the way the, you, the word is used in the Bible. The, the word know is an intimate term. It's not knowing about things, it's knowing its people. Number two, we looked at the broader context of how the word is used in the Bible. Number two is how the word is used here in the immediate context. And in the immediate context, it's about the people of God. We've seen that. That's what all of Romans 8 has been about, hasn't it? We are those people whom are in Christ. For us, there is no condemnation. We are the ones who have the spirit of God. We are those who love God. We are those who are called. We are those justified. We are those glorified. And so you see, it's God knowing people, those whom. So he's not, again, looking down history. He's foreknowing people, those whom he will see to the ends. God foreknew his people. He foreloved his people. Number three. Third reason is it can't be that God just before time looked down the corridors of history and waited to see who would have their own free will respond to him. Why? Well, if we've been with us in Romans, we've seen that we're unable to respond to God without his initiation, right? Look back at Romans chapter 3 where we saw this so clearly. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 11. This is that summary of how sin has affected us. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So because of our sin, we're left. If we're left to ourselves, we're doomed because why? No one seeks for God. So it can't be that God just leaves us to ourselves to see who would seek him because the Bible says no one in our sin without his initiation seeks for him. We saw the same thing in Romans 8 itself. Look at Romans 8 verse 7. If it's left up to us, we will not respond. Verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh, which is another way of speaking of unbelievers, 
the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot respond. Because of our sin, left to ourselves, we would not respond. God must take the initiative. If God just observed what we would do, no one would be saved. We, because of sin, were unable. In fact, that's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that faith is a gift, right? So it can't be, again, that God just waits because God gives the gift of faith. If God's the one who gives the gift of faith, he's not waiting to see who would exercise faith themselves. Here's how Spurgeon put it. He said, but say others, God elected them on the foresight of their faith. That's the foresight view. Now, God gives faith. Therefore, he could not have elected them on account of the faith which he foresaw. Faith is a gift. Left to ourselves, we're unable. Fourth reason. If it's just that God foresees, God knows the future, which again, all Christians agree with that truth. It's just not what's being taught here. If God foresees all people, then all people must be saved. Why? Well, notice the connection here in these verses. Because he knows all things, it's a golden chain. So those whom he foreknew will be called, will be justified, will be glorified. And so if he foreknows all people, all will be justified and all will be glorified. And we know that that's not true. None of these five verbs can refer to everyone. They all refer to a focused group of people. Again, what verse 33 calls the elect. So it can't be foreknowledge for that reason as well. Fifth. If God just looks down the corridors of time and sees who would save themselves and then responds, then the ground of their salvation lies in them. If we did it, we did it. God responds to us. And so the ground of salvation then would not be in God. It would be in our own self-generated volition. And then we would have room to boast. Because I chose and he didn't. But Ephesians 2, again, let me read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. God has designed this world and the plan of salvation so that boasting can only be focused on him, not on us. Sixth, and finally, it really doesn't solve the problem. I think that the foresight view is adapted, is adhered to, to try to solve a problem. I think people, and I was one of them, don't like the thought of a God who would choose some and not others. And so this view, we think, makes it easy for us. We'll say, well, no, it actually isn't God the one's choosing. We choose. So foreknowledge and predestination aren't actually things God do. It's what he does in response to us. And so, again, we are the ones who determine. And it kind of gets God off the hook. So we think. But listen, I want to show you that it actually doesn't solve the problem. It just kicks the can down the road a little bit. Here's why. Because still on that view, God, before time, looks down history, sees who will of their own self-generated free will choose him, and then on that basis, he predestines them. And he knows then, not all will be chosen. And he still decides to create the world. So on that view, he still creates a world in which he knows not all will be foreknown and predestination. I don't know if you followed that point. 
But if we all believe that he's all-knowing and all-powerful, he could have done something different. But he didn't. Here's how Bruce Ware, who was our guest at the Abilene Theology Conference this morning, put it. He said that if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then we have to say on that view that God intentionally permits what he could have prevented. So it doesn't actually get God off the hook. I suggest that we ought not try to get God off the hook. He doesn't need our help. We just need to submit to what he's revealed. One of our favorite kids' books is a book called The Biggest Story, and there's a line in there, and it says, but God is God, so he gets to pick. He doesn't need us to get him off the hook. Foreknowledge is not what he foresaw, but whom he foreknew. And here's where these are good news verses, friends. That means that before the ages begin, God knew you. He didn't just know about you or what you might do. He knew you by name. He loved you. He determined to set his affection on you. That's what foreknowledge is. So that's the first verb, foreknowledge. Second verb, the P word. Predestination. Look again at Romans 8.30. Well, let's read 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined. And again, this word, the meaning of the word is very apparent. It just means to predestine, to determine the destiny of, beforehand to predetermine destinies its basic lexical definition in a greek dictionary is to decide upon beforehand it's the preordained plan of god that will certainly come to pass and i mentioned last week every christian believes in predestination now there's debate on what the word means especially debate about foreknowledge but here it is right here before us it happens several times i'm not so bold as to say this so i'll let charles spurgeon say it but he says this you must first deny the authenticity and full inspiration of the Holy Scripture before you can legitimately and truly deny election. And the reason it's in there all the time, some form of the word election, which means choice or predestination occurs 50 times in our Bibles. Did you know that? Five, zero. It's not a small thing. Just a lot of pastors don't have the guts to preach about it. But we do here at Southside. It's not a minor theme, and we need to grapple with it. And what will happen if this is new to you? Here's what will happen. You ever been shopping for a car? You know, you, like, you, know, you want the, the red Volkswagen, and you never, you never see them. And all of a sudden, you start shopping for a car. And what do you see all over the highways? Red Volkswagens. They're everywhere. That's what this, what this sermon will do. You're going to start seeing this theme all over the place because it's there some 50 times. The most packed chapters are Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and John 6. Flip over a few pages to Ephesians 1. Blessed, Ephesians 1, 3. 1, 3 to 14 remembers this one long sentence of praise. hundred and something words, and it's one long sentence, no punctuation and the whole point is praise God it starts in verse 3 blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and then he's going to go and list I wonder if we stopped right here 
and said, praise God. Why do you praise God? And we just did a poll. I wonder what you would say. Praise God for fill in the blank. What's the first thing that comes to your mind in terms of every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ? Fascinatingly, for the Apostle Paul, it's election. It's predestination. Do you know why? He knows without it, he has no hope. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's the first spiritual blessing that comes to mind. Being chosen before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Clear as crystal if we will receive what God has said. Second Timothy 1.9 says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There it is again. This promise, verse 28, that God will work all things for good can be taken to the bank because God has not only foreknown us, but predestined us. Foreknowledge and predestination occur before God even creates. But in history, in our life history then, third verb, he calls us. He calls us. Look again at verse 30, Romans 8, 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Before time, God foreknows and predestines his people. And then in our life history, in our own experience, he calls those whom he predestined. Remember what we learned about our BC days, right? Our before Christ days. We were unable. We were not responsive. No one sought him. In our sin, we're hostile towards him and unable to respond to him. Jesus puts it this way in John 6, No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him crystal clear. No one can, he says. No one has the ability to come to me unless God takes initiative. So we saw, we've seen a few times in Romans, this word call for Paul, it's not just an invitation. It's not just a general invitation. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's a sovereign summons. And God, the spirit calls us through the gospel. So here's how it works. The, what theologians call the general call it goes out. It goes out while I'm preaching. It goes out while you're sharing the gospel. It went out to you at some point. The general call is us preaching the gospel. But that general call will not be heeded. We've seen that. Unless God the Spirit applies the effective call and draws people to faith. If Bo had been a girl, we were going to name that, that fifth child Lydia. And here's why. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She wasn't a believer in Jesus. She was Jewish. And notice what happened. Paul goes, he, he issues that general call. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
That's what happened to every one of us. In our life history, we were called. Remember, we were like Lazarus, dead. Ephesians 2, dead in sin, spiritually unresponsive. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who was already decaying walks out of the tomb. That was us. It's a call that overcomes our inability. It's a call that overcomes human resistance. And then we come to faith. That's why we sing, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. God called us. Romans 4, 17, God calls into existence things that do not exist. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, God calls us into his kingdom and his glory. We are the called out ones. You know, that's what the word church means. The word church means the called out ones. The word church in Greek is ekklesia. The verb for call is kaleo. We are the called out ones as the church. And notice again, we see that this plan is Trinitarian through and through. The Father predestines, the Son redeems, and the Spirit calls us to faith through the gospel. Sometimes when people hear this teaching, they ask, well, wait, 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 what if I'm not predestined? How do I know if I'm predestined? Very simple answer. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe you're a sinner and need forgiveness and Jesus is the provider of that forgiveness? Well, then you've been called because you wouldn't believe that if you hadn't been called. In order to believe, we must be called. He opened your hearts to believe the gospel. Listen to 1 Thessalonians, a couple of passages, really helpful. 1 Thessalonians 1.4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? How do we know that? He has chosen these Thessalonians because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do you know that someone has been chosen? They respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we know. Another one in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know we're chosen? We responded to believing the truth. That's how we know. So this call of God is the historical, our life experience application of God's eternal plan and predestination. We must believe. Again, Bible teaches God's sovereign and we're responsible. We must believe and we must tell people you must believe. But God must call us to that belief. Remember what Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Faith is a gift that he gives and he gives that gift as we share the gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17, it's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. So that's why the gospel's got to go. He saves through the gospel. I think it was R.C. Sproul I first heard use the imagery of a cross. And so as we come to Christ, there's this massive cross. And on it, it says, whosoever will may come. And as we are convicted of our sin and we see the beauty of Jesus, we enter that cross. Thinking it's all us. <laughs> That's the way we're saved. But as we pass through that cross, we turn around. On the other side of that cross, it says, Ephesians 1.4, chosen in him 
before the foundation of the world. We enter John 6:44 and he says it again in John 6:63, we enter because he drew us. Here's how John Stott puts it. He says, clearly then, a decision is involved in the process of becoming a Christian, but it's God's decision before it can be ours. This is not to deny that we decided for Christ and freely, but to affirm that we did so only because he had first decided for us. Or as 1 John puts it, we love, why? Because he first loved us. You know, confessions of faith, there's good ones and there's bad ones, but they're really good if they can synthesize a whole lot of biblical teaching together and usually put it together in an elegant way. And one of the ones I love, it's not ours. We hold to the Baptist faith and message here. This one's from 1689. It's long and a bit archaic, but the London Baptist Confession summarizes these verse really well in Article 10.1. I want to read, I want to read it to you. In God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Made willing. Why? By grace. God calls us sovereignly and effectively. That's calling. Let's move to the next verb, justified. Look again at verse 30 in this golden chain. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And we've, if you've been with us, we've seen a whole lot about the doctrine of justification. In many ways, the whole book of Romans so far has been about the need for justification, the provision of justification, and the results of justification. Justification is God declaring us in the right. The fundamental human problem is that God requires righteousness and there is none righteous. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ provides the righteousness that we need. In the gospel, God gives what he demands. And so as we trust in Jesus Christ, we are declared in the right. That's what the verb means. Sins forgiven and counted righteous because of Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 4? Reckoned as righteous. That's what justification is. Those whom are foreknown are predestined, are called to faith by which we are justified. It's an unbreakable chain. All who are called are justified. It doesn't say that some of the called are justified. It says all. This is why we know that this call is not for everyone. This call doesn't reach everyone. This effective call is only for those whom God has foreknown and predestined. All those God has foreknown and predestined will be called, will be justified. Again, how are we justified? By faith and faith alone. How do we have faith? God calls us to faith. You see the connections from eternity past to eternity future. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What's the next verb? Look again at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Maybe most incredibly, these verses speak of our future glorification in past tense. Glorification is what happens when Christ returns and transforms us, gives us resurrection bodies, resurrects this world, right? Romans 8, 18 to 23. And the whole thing is already finished in the mind of God. Remember Isaiah 46, he is the God who declares the end from the beginning. Ancient times, things not yet seen, saying, I will accomplish my purpose, my counsel will stand. It is a done deal in his mind. Those whom God foreknows, he predestines, calls, justifies, they will be glorified. You can count on it. Will be made perfect in mind and body and soul. John Boys was one of the translators of the King James. And he said, justification is blessedness begun. Glorification is blessedness perfected. Jesus has taken care of the penalty of sin. Again, because we are unrighteous, we deserve condemnation. On the cross, Jesus took care of the penalty that we deserve. In our place, condemned he stood. We saw in Romans 6 that by union with Christ and the power of the Spirit, the power, the dominion of sin is being broken. It has been broken. But here we look, one day he will completely remove the presence of sin glorification, the glory that will be revealed that makes the present suffering seem light and momentary. Groaning will give way to glory. And for those in Christ, it's a guarantee. It's a done deal from God's point of view. Paul's so sure that glorification will take place for those whom God has predestined and called that he writes as if it's already happened. Between the call and the glorification, none are lost from eternity past to eternity future salvation is of the Lord I think Paul in these verses is probably reflecting on the teaching of Jesus he often does that and specifically John six thirty seven. notice the similarities Jesus says all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out Wish I had more time to show you the connections. This is John 6. I've been quoting John 6, 44. But no one can come unless the Father draws. Let me read it again. All that the Father gives me, that's Jesus' way of talking about predestination. Says it a lot in the Gospel of John. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. Later he says, they will hear my voice. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will bring to completion that which he started. His plan is unalterable. So how can we be confident in verse 28? How can we know that God will work all things together for the good? Well, just look at what he's done. From eternity past to eternity future, our salvation is secure. Here's the way Pastor Tim Keller puts it. Here's what God has done for Christians. For new God set his love upon us. Predestined, God planned a glorious destination for us. Called and justified, God works out his plan and time. Glorified, God completes the plan in eternity. So how should we respond? Well, first, we wrestle. We're going to say a lot more about how to respond to this because we've actually got a lot more. Romans 9 
covers it in depth. But the first thing is to wrestle. If this conversation is brand new to you, you may be mad as fire right now. Don't be mad at me. I didn't write it. But I can, I can relate. I have been there. When I was first exposed, I was too. It rocked my world. I'll tell you more of the story in Romans 9. When I first was exposed to these truths, I set out to prove them wrong. I just lost. But I struggled for months. And it was during a season which I had a lot more free time than many of you do because I was a college student. Even Jonathan Edwards, who ended up being one of the greatest proponents of sovereign grace, said this. He said, the, the doctrine, talking about these, the doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. And so maybe that's where you are today. And I want you to just encourage just to wrestle. Wrestle with the scripture. But that's the key. We, we want you to wrestle with the scripture. And so engage and study Romans 8 and Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and, and John 6. Pray and study and meditate. The prayer of the leadership is this becomes sweet to you after you wrestle. Luther said that predestination is wonderfully sweet for those who have the Spirit. Spurgeon said, some men hate the doctrine of divine sovereignty, but those who are called by grace love it. For they feel if it had not been for sovereignty, they never would have been saved. And it may not start that way, and that's okay. That's okay. We're here to talk, here to meet with you, wrestle with questions for months and months. What we want is a submission to what God has said, and a, a, a wrestling with Scripture, not just emotional arguments. And this doctrine, more than probably any other, does raise emotions, doesn't it? Second way, though, is what our ultimate goal is, that you'll respond to these truths in Romans 8 and in Romans 9 with worship on the other side of it. That was my story. Started wrestling and ended up on my back with a grander view of God than I had ever known. Really seeing how deep and wide and high and broad the love of God is for us in Christ. Really for the first time understanding grace, like real grace, not like grace plus me. No, grace, grace alone. John Newton believed these truths. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And I think until we grapple with these and really understand these truths, we don't really fold the, we don't understand the full extent of grace. Grace doesn't really become truly amazing until we see that from eternity past to eternity future, salvation is all of grace. You can say how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Way before your father's 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 father even had a twinkle in his eye for what would become his future wide, God already knew you by name. God had chosen you and he had a plan to bring you the gospel, to open your blind eyes and to soften your hard heart and to make Jesus precious rather than irrelevant. In the process that he has now started, he promises to bring to completion. He will finish what he started. He will accomplish his purpose for your joy and for his glory, friends. This is stunning truth. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also 
justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 